Our second reading this morning is from Luke chapter 3. I will be reading verses 7 through 18. Uh, You can find this in the Pew Bibles on page 1020. Hear the word of God. John the baptizer said, therefore, to the crowds that had come out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Hey, John, can you pull me back a little bit? Father God, we uh, thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that as we gather around your scriptures, uh, that you might speak to us, uh, that you might meet us where we are individually this day. I pray that you would be uh, present in this preaching, and that you'd be present uh, in each of our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning I want to take love down a peg or two. People talk about love as though it were the highest thing, the the greatest thing. As though it were the origin of every other virtue. And don't get me wrong, I think love is a good thing. But is it really the best? Is it really what we need more than anything else? You've all heard the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, Love Is All You Need. Really? Is that all you need? What about gas in your tank or a BLT at lunch? Those would be kind of nice. How about internet access and someone to pick up 911 when you call? We need those two. I know it's just pop music and maybe that's the way it feels when you're young and your hormones are brewing, but come on, love is all you need? And then there's the Hollies song, 
You remember this one. All I need is the air that I breathe and to love you. That's a little better because at least now we have air. It's kind of hard to get by without air. And of course now we don't have the sun either. And so at least we can breathe and love until we all freeze to death. I'm being silly, of course. But only because I had a conversation this past week with VCS students in chapel. We were talking about when people love you but don't like you. It's something that kids feel a lot. Kids spend a lot of time feeling the disapproval of people who say that they love them. Parents, of course, are supposed to love their children. Don't pat yourself on the back if you love your kids. You're some kind of monster if you don't love your kids. Parents these days are constantly saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. I think it's just a cultural thing. It's changed over time. I remember my father preaching at his mother's funeral in Philadelphia back in 1978. He said that His mother never told him that she loved him. It just wasn't done in those days, at least if you were English. But my father never felt unloved. That was the point that he was making in this sermon. And I certainly have nothing but fond memories of my grandmother. She was a very kind-hearted, loving Christian woman. But she didn't run around saying, I love you all of the time. Nowadays... Children regularly have the experience of having people who say they love them, but who don't necessarily like them or approve of them or are pleased with them. I think children are in a very confusing position of having people say to them, I love you, I love you, I love you. But the nonverbal messages, the other words spoken are, I don't approve of you. I am displeased with you. Come to think of it, I don't actually like you. Now, of course, we don't say those things out loud. We don't have to because our kids are smart. I don't like you, but I love you. Who wants that? Love is all you need? Really? I don't know what your childhood was like, but I spent... About 85% of my growing up being in trouble for one thing or another. Just the other day I was remembering the time I stole the copper wires under our house that connected our telephones to the outside world. My 11-year-old brain had not yet fully understood electrical circuits. I was sure that my theft would go undetected and I needed that wire for a project that I was working on. And with surgical precision, I clipped the wires, took what I needed, and the phones went dead, and the phone company had to be brought in, and it didn't take long to figure out what happened, and my father was not happy, he was not pleased. Did he love me? Sure. Was he pleased with me? Not at all. In that moment, which would I have preferred? That my father loved me? Or that my father was pleased with me and understood what I was doing. What is true of children is also true, I think, of adults. We don't generally walk around saying, I love you, I love you, I love you to each other. 
But we are constantly transmitting signals that make it clear if we like someone, if we approve of them, if we are pleased with them, if we enjoy being with them. And what adult wants to hear someone say, though no one would ever say it out loud, Oh, I love you. I have to. I'm a Christian. But I really don't like you. And I don't enjoy being with you. Love is all you need? Really? Our reading this morning from Zephaniah is a messianic prophecy. God is talking to Jerusalem about what will happen when Messiah comes. And what God promises is that God, in that time, will take great delight in His people. That God will be so filled with joy over His people that He begins to sing. I'd like to suggest to you that that will be even better than being loved. Now this is a complicated passage. And the range of actions and emotions presented is rich. The day that Messiah shows up will be an awesome and a fearsome and a wonderful day. Let me just quickly give you the litany that was read for us and then we'll dig in a little bit. On that day, on the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back and the world is transformed, there will be singing and there's going to be shouting. And there's going to be gladness and joy because our punishment will be removed and God's rebuke will no longer sound in our ears and our enemies are going to be pushed back and our oppressors will face justice. And the lame will walk and the scattered will be regathered and our fear will be gone. That would have been enough Dayenu, every need met, every obstacle overcome, every evil vanquished, every crime repaid. That would have been enough, but that's not where it stops. God will not stop with just relieving our suffering. God will not stop with just holy revenge. God will not stop with just meeting our needs. Our suffering will be gone. And those who wounded us in their hatred will be destroyed. And every need will be met with an unending banquet. But that's not all. God will also give us honor and praise in front of the very people who shamed us. God will also sing a joy-filled song about us. God will take delight in us. He'll be happy with us. Do you ever think about what brings God pleasure? You and I are creatures. God created us and designed us with a capacity for pleasure. We were made to enjoy things that bring life and bring honor to God. When things went wrong in the Garden of Eden, it was because instead of pursuing what would bring us life, we pursued what would bring us honor. The temptation of Eden was to be as wise as God, to be our own God. That is 
the fundamental temptation that a creature suffers. We don't want to be the creature. We want to be the creator. That was Satan's temptation too. In our era, in our technological era, the temptation is the same. To be the creator and not the creature. We want to be self-made. We live in an era of body modification and so-called sex change operations. Gender and sex, of course, cannot be changed. They are hardwired into all 37 billion cells of your body. Yes, your hair and your toenails know whether or not you are a man or a woman. What body, what is body modification? if not a desire to be the creator, to reject the body which was given to us by Almighty God as His intentional gift and to say that it isn't good enough and we know better. And now Mark Zuckerberg is promising us a metaverse because the created universe is not good enough. Now, of course, the Internet has always been the playground of self-recreation. We've all seen Peter Steiner's classic 1993, and I can't believe it's been that long ago, cartoon in the New Yorker, Fido says to Rover, on the Internet, no one knows you're a dog. It's a lot of years of faking and fraud, of self-creation. And, of course, it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. The wonder about God's creation is that it was right, and it was good, and God built pleasure into the creation, into our very nature. There are all of the obvious pleasures of life, of good food and good company, but do you know that our highest pleasure, our highest purpose, our chief end is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what the Westminster Larger Catechism says. Pleasure is part of our greatest purpose. Kind of wonderful to think that when God created us, He made us for pleasure. But what about God's pleasures? God is not a creature. He has no needs. What could be more pleasant than a glass of water when you're really thirsty? But God is never thirsty. God's pleasures are not the satisfaction of a creaturely need. They are higher. And to tell the truth, I think we actually know a little bit about those higher kinds of pleasures. Pleasures that are not based on a fulfilled need. I think that is what delight is. Delight is a pleasure that is not about a satisfaction. I think because the image of God is impressed on each of us at our deepest levels, we sometimes have glimpses into the mind of God just by observing our own nature. I've been thinking about the pleasures in my life. I've enjoyed myself and many ways my life has been good. I have no reason to complain, but when I hear this verse, he will take great delight in you, 
And yes, the Hebrew verb does mean that God is experiencing pleasure. He will take great delight in you. My mind takes me to my children. My mind also thinks about your children. Rosie and Calvin and Mia are now too old for me to carry around anymore. But how many years of pleasure did I have holding a child in my arms? Of walking around with them, of seeing the world through their eyes, of looking into their perfectly formed faces and seeing their simple pleasures and delights. What's more beautiful than watching a child gobble her food? What's more satisfying than listening to a child talk? What's more wonder-inducing than watching a child leap and dance? Last night, Noel Wolf posted a video of his daughter Hannah in a figure skating competition. And he wrote, simply, amazing, so pleased. The pleasure of children is not like the pleasure of eating or the pleasure of enjoying adult company. It's not about satisfying a need that we have because a child doesn't really do anything for you. They don't meet some need you have. In fact, they are the needy ones. You wait on them hand and foot. When they cry, you come running. When they say, hey, Papa, you say, I'm right here. When they say, can I, you say, of course. The pleasure of children isn't the pleasure of a satisfied need. And by the way, if a child is meeting the needs of an adult, there's something seriously wrong in that relationship. Now, some of you evolutionists will say to me, well, children meet your need to pass on your genes. The pleasure is a biological pleasure, genetic survival. I will concede there is a certain pleasure in knowing that my children will outlive me. But that's not what I'm talking about now. Because I'm just as delighted to listen to your two-year-old as my own. There's just something wonderful about children. And it's not the same as being proud. Sometimes we are proud of our children. That's more akin to the pleasure in seeing your genes live on. That's not what I'm talking about. My delight with Rosie and Calvin and Mia has nothing to do with their success. After church today... Rosie will stop by my house, she'll do some laundry, and it will be wonderful just to have her around. Last night, Calvin and I hung out with a group of guys, and we read poems and smoked cigars. Life doesn't get any better than this. Five days a week, Mia rides with me to work. She goes to Valley Christian School here. I wouldn't pass up those before and after school conversations for anything. I just look at my kids and I'm pleased. I look at my kids and I think, what more could I ask for? How do you explain that? When Messiah comes, a whole bunch of things are going to happen. The day of the Lord is complicated. On that day, the wicked will be punished. 
The righteous will be restored. All of creation will be reset to how God intended things to be. And there, in the middle of it all, there's going to be this delight of God, this sinking of God. Picture that. God, so happy, so pleased, so delighted that it begins to sing over us. I'm glad that God loves me. But I'm looking forward to that day when God is pleased with me and delighted in me. This is the third Sunday of Advent. We look forward to the coming of the Christ child on Christmas, the first Advent. We also look forward to the second coming of Jesus when he returns in his majesty and in his power. The day of the Lord, the day when Jesus shows up is fraught, it's complicated. Not everyone's going to be happy. Not everyone was happy when Jesus came around the first time. The majority wanted to kill him. Why would we be happy to see God? Why would we welcome the day of the Lord? Well, maybe because we need his help. God is powerful. God is merciful. Maybe we need something from his infinite store of resources, prosperity, health, peace. Those are the kinds of blessings we ask for from God on a regular basis, and that is right and that is appropriate. Or maybe we are oppressed by evil people more powerful than we are, and so we need God to intervene, to set things right. To fight for us, to execute justice. Sometimes we want to see God because of what He can do for us. Because we want Him to satisfy a need that we have. Most of our prayers, I think, are of that sort. We talk to God because we need things from God. And that's okay. But it is also possible to want to see God simply because we are entranced by Him. By what He's already revealed of Himself. We have seen a little bit of God dimly, darkly, and what we've seen has been good and beautiful, and we want to see more. We want to see Him in broad daylight. Maybe you're praying that God would reveal Himself to you more fully. That's a good prayer. If we are not happy to see God, and the majority will not be happy on the day of the Lord, it is probably because God is a lawgiver and we are lawbreakers. It is probably because God is king and we want to rule. It is probably because God is a judge and we dread the juryless trial that we will face. Jesus is coming again. And his arrival will be a day of terror for those who are in rebellion, for those who think that they are their own creators, for those who have not recognized and embraced the truth that they are made by God and answerable to God. God has a law. Because of the fall, we're not able to keep that law. And that means we all are just waiting for the inevitable trial at which we will be condemned. That's a reason to not want to see the day of the Lord. 
But the good news is that God loved this world and that he sent Jesus into this world to rescue us from our own rebellion. Jesus died on a cross. He bore the divine penalty for sin and rebellion. And if we place our faith in Jesus, if we admit that we're creatures and sinners with no hope outside of God, then those sins are wiped away and we have no fear of the coming judgment. With our sins wiped away, God is no longer our enemy. With our sins wiped away, God will look at us and be delighted. He will be rejoicing over us with singing. Of course, it's the work of Christ that accomplishes these things. And so we have no reason to brag about it. Our redemption, our salvation is the work of Christ. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But it's wonderful nonetheless. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And we had a simple and sweet communion with God there in the garden. No fear, just fellowship. Sin and death have been a potent enemy to what God intended, and so it took a potent Savior to put that enemy to death, to put sin and death to death. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And by faith in Jesus, we are restored to our original relationship with God. No longer is He the one that we run and hide from when we hear Him coming. There are, of course, children in this world who run and hide when their fathers come home. It's terrible, but... But it's true, it's a sign of how fallen this world is. A child should be thrilled to see his father. His face should light up and he should run to be with him. But not everyone has had that experience. By faith in Christ, we are again God's children and God takes delight in us. God will rejoice over us with singing. And you know why? Because that's what he wants. What father doesn't want to be delighted with his own children? The Bible talks about the father's delight in three related ways. The father's delight with his chosen people, the father's delight with his only begotten son, and the father's delight with the prodigal son. In Isaiah we read, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. Now that doesn't mean that Israel was sinless. But a father's delight in his child is down in his bones. It's not easily removed. In Jeremiah, God says, Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I have often spoken against him because of his sins, I still remember him, therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Ever since the fall, ever since we went our way, God's heart has been yearning for us, for our return. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to rescue us. Anyone who has an estranged or lost child knows this grief. The father takes delight in his chosen people. 
The father also takes delight in his only begotten son. You remember, of course, the voice from heaven when Jesus was baptized saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I love the boy, but I'm also pleased with him. We see the same sentiment in a messianic prophecy from Isaiah where we hear God say, This is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. The father loves the son, of course, but he's also delighted with him and pleased with him. And finally, the father is also pleased with the prodigal son. That's all of us who woke up one day and realized that we were living in a crazy way, that we were living in pig slop. And so we screwed up our courage and we went home. We went in fear because we knew that we had sinned against the Father. But even when we were still a long way off, He saw us coming and He ran to us. And He gave us a robe and He gave us a ring. And he killed the fatted calf and he celebrated because he is so delighted that his son who was lost has been returned to him. The gospel is hard to believe. Because the world has been telling us for so long that we give pleasure, we give delight that we are worthy of honor and praise only when we are good and perform well like circus monkeys. And it's a crushing burden to bear. It's a hopeless treadmill of performance. That's what false religion teaches, salvation by works. The gospel is hard to believe because it tells us that we are loved by God and will be forgiven by God and become a delight to God, completely independent of how we've performed. Christians are a delight to God because Christians have been grafted into the body of Christ and the Father is delighted with His own Son. When you place your faith in Jesus, His record becomes your record. His perfect righteousness becomes credited to your account and the Father will take great delight in you. Restored to the way that you should have been from the beginning. Your Father will rejoice over you with singing because you are as beautiful and delightful as He made you to be. God loves you. That's for sure. But my prayer is that he would also delight in you and be pleased with you and one day sing songs over you. Let us pray. Almighty God, we can't take it all in. We thank you for the little glimpses we have of who you are and what you've done in this world. We thank you for being who you are, pure and just and beautiful and merciful and delightful in yourself. And we thank you for making this world good. Father, we are sorry for 
having messed it up and gone our own way. Thank you for sending Jesus into this world to find us and to pay the penalty for us so that we could be restored to you. Lord, I pray that our hearts would long for that day when you return in power and in glory to receive your full honor that you deserve, but also to set this world aright. Lord, there's so much that's wrong. But I think above all else, we look forward to that day when you will sing over us and be pleased with us and delighted in us. The way a father is delighted in his children. Lord, give us hearts and faith that can know you as a father. Lord Jesus, you said that unless we come as children, we can't enter the kingdom of God. I I pray this day that you would make us like children, longing for their fathers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Let us confess what it is that we believe as Christians.